All right, everybody, don't drop that fast forward button. The sponsorship roll call is about to begin. Energy Consulting Limited provides complete project management and general contracting services to a variety of private sector clients on both commercial and residential construction projects. They act as the owner's representatives through the planning, design, budgeting, scheduling, construction, and occupancy processes. Clients appreciate their open, honest, and flexible approach to achieving their project goals. Although they're located in Surrey, BC, Energy works on projects all over the province, including the growing cities of the north and the beautiful coastal towns of Vancouver Island. They're always excited to explore new places and develop relationships with professionals wherever their clients' interests may be. Abacus North is a firm that specializes in mortgage banking solutions for complex projects. In addition to providing financing solutions in a traditional mortgage broker capacity, Abacus North provides direct loans that range from $2 million to $25 million. On a syndicated basis, they provide mortgage banking solutions up to $300 million. In most cases, their in-house capital solutions can bridge financing gaps that traditional lenders are unable to service. They specialize in providing land acquisition loans, construction financing for large-scale developments, income-producing properties, and single-purpose facilities. With a portfolio that includes high-rise, mid-rise, and low-rise condominiums, townhouse developments, shopping centers, agricultural properties, industrial developments, and medical marijuana facilities, Abacus North is at the forefront of creative mortgage banking solutions with a focus on fostering long-term relationships. They are a multifaceted organization that services domestic and international clients with their mortgage banking needs. Complex financing solutions require analytical thinking well beyond a typical mortgage broker relationship. As a result, they focus on providing engineered solutions for their client. Their key differentiation strategy is that they assist clients in actively managing the capital stack in order to minimize borrowing costs while maximizing flexibility. Abacus North focuses on national and global opportunities. Ascentia CPA has a team of new-gen chartered professional accountants that are dedicated to advancing companies using expertise combined with emerging technologies. The team at Ascentia will implement the latest accounting technologies, allowing you to not only run a business, but to run a smart business that will excel in your industry. Their focus is to provide growth-centric, value-added, and timely accounting services for businesses, as well as individuals across Canada. Unlike standard accounting firms, by embracing cloud-based software, the team at Ascentia will provide you with real-time accounting information on a secure platform that is accessible anywhere at any time, allowing you to make better informed decisions and gain more controlled overview of your financial data. The reliability and expertise you will experience with the professionals at Ascentia will assist you in the preparation of corporate and personal tax returns, financial statements, bookkeeping, government filings, tax and estate planning, as well as business advisory services. For more information on the advantages of online accounting and to book a complimentary meeting online, be sure to visit ascentiacpa.ca. We are we are live. So, um, all the way from Washington, D.C., we have a very special guest uh, on the podcast today. And for anybody who knows me and knows that a lot of the content that I, I put out 
like health and nutrition is always going to be the foundation of all that, you know, especially, you know, some hot topics that I've discussed on this podcast, you know, quite a bit in an abundant of detail is, you know, sugar consumption, the effects that it has on our body and, you know, like the worldwide efforts that are going on right now to be able to limit um, our sugar consumption. Consumption. So, Sarsi, welcome, uh, welcome to the podcast, and and spill the beans. Like I'm just, I have been dying to have this conversation with you ever since since we connected, because somebody um, that's as passionate about this topic as I, I'm always just like immensely, immensely encapsulated to be able to have a, a, an extensive conversation with them. So, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for their platform. No problem. No problem. So how did you, uh, how did you get so passionate about sugar? Like what's your connection, you know, to sugar, health and fitness, health and wellness? Cause, um, you know, maybe you could kind of walk everybody through, you know, like, like your credentials, like some of the awards that you've won and, you know, like the shows that you've been on, because it is very, very extensive. So I just want to give you a little bit of authority. So when you're talking, people know that they're not just talking to somebody, they're talking to somebody who has absolute authority to be able to speak on the subject they're speaking about. Absolutely. Well, first off, I was a product of of what would be called systemic oppression uh, growing up in Washington, D.C. Uh, I grew up in what would have been considered a red line community under poverty lines. And one of the uh, recent interviews that I did as a feature in Neuro Magazine, we talked about the connection from poverty to policy. And we walked through our community where we talked about the health implications of having a, a sugary-based corner store in every other corner and um, our grocery stores lacking the resources uh, that was needed to, to really properly uh, provide the proper nutrition uh, that young folks and, and families would need to thrive on. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, growing up in those conditions, you start to wonder, you know, how come grocery stores in other parts of the city are better than ours? Or how come we have more uh, a liquor store and convenience store with only really sugar-based drink options in our stores, um, unlike in wealthier communities? And so, uh, you know, I was a product of this uh, uh, epidemic, if you will. Um, and then transitioning from growing up in the, in that environment to directly becoming a health advocate. I became a health ambassador, um, educating families on healthier food options and intentionally researching, uh, you know, what fruits, fruits and vegetables would um, help me to properly care for myself. Um, and a lot of that happened after I found out that my mom was obese. Mm-hmm. And then my younger sister was diagnosed as pre-diabetic. And then uh, we started to get go through our family history and find the connection between sugar and other illnesses throughout our family lineage. And so I know that's not just my family. I know that's many other families that are growing up in poverty-stricken communities with limited resources um, and limited access. And so when you know better, you have an obligation to speak out against it and to do better. See, and I think so, you make a, sorry to, cut, to jump in there real quick. I, I just think you make an extremely valid point um, that a lot of people overlook that, you know, in lower socioeconomic backgrounds or poverty stricken communities, like we deem that these foods are cheaper um, so that these are the reasons why they're supplied in abundance. But my, my argument to that continually, 
continually is anything's going to be cheap if we want to be able to make it cheap and affordable for people to be able to consume. There you go. There you go. You know, we have an opportunity to do that right now um, with, you know, how do we look at what, how do we offset the cost of affordability, you know, with water and, and, and proper nutritious food. I mean, I did my own study where I went to buy some, you know, fruits from my local store and those fruits were not available. And then the fruits that were available, I ended up finding out they were of lower cost and higher quality that in, the, in wealthier communities than in my community. Did you and ever so find out a reason why that was? Because that, like, you, things like that just don't listen, make a whole I, lot of sense to anybody, right? I'm on the quest, as you, as you can see, talking to you about this right now, with shedding a lot of light to these matters where we can get to the bottom of it. Um, so, the, the, you know, it definitely starts with awareness that, one, we're paying attention, which oftentimes, you know, uh, the beverage industry or the sugar industry, the soda industry, or, or, you, or, or you name it, are thinking that we're not paying attention to these things, um, but we are. Mm -hmm. See, and, you know, and that's the one, this is, this is my thing, too, because I know uh, in Vancouver, BC, you know, British Columbia in general right now, like we're recently about to implement our 7% sugar tax, you know, as of July 1st, 2020. You know, a, a problem that I have with that is, you know, because this is a provincial sales tax that has been implemented on a lot of other items already, except for food-based products. So they're just deeming this to be considered potentially like a non-food-based product. But the one thing that I say is that because sugar is found in almost everything that we consume now that comes in like a box or a package from pasta sauce to sugary beverages to, you know, some meats and, you know, all these sort of things. When do we have the social responsibility for understanding that we, we shouldn't just target the beverage companies, but we should understand how sugars become an epidemic in our culture globally amongst all the food that we eat? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the sugar tax is a global pandemic similar to this coronavirus that we're seeing spread right now, uh, which is getting a little bit more massive attention, whereas there are people that are obviously um, lifespans have cut much shorter. Uh, but the same similar impact is happening with the overconsumption of sugar in our diet. Uh, and I agree is that it's not just the beverage industry, which is one of the leading causes of our overconsumption because of uh, uh, the unethical labeling and lack of having the proper uh, documentation on how much sugar you're actually consuming when drinking these beverages. But it is in our overall diet. And so what does that look like when we won, you, you, the sugar tax was able to have a national and an international impact, you know, so obviously more and more cities are looking to adopt it. And we've had the fortunate opportunity to say, hey, people in our communities necessarily are not excited about the sugar tax. How can we enhance this, you know, uh, how can we enhance this policy that really makes an impact in the overall quality of life? And so we've been able to, to create that opportunity for us to give input in policies, health policies overall, for us to say, hey, how do we make you know, food more affordable? How, we, how do we put more cash in families' pockets uh, to be able to, to enhance the quality of life? And so this is just a starting point. You know, Don't Meet My Health is uh, becoming a national and even globally with attacking health issues 
um, and, uh, you know, obviously across the board, but specifically dealing with black communities, which have been disproportionately uh, uh, health challenged uh, uh, since the inception of this country. Yeah, see, and you know, like the, you know, like when you talk about like, maybe kind of fill every, because everybody in, because when you say that again, you know, being, you know, the demographic that you are, like you have like an absolute input, you have your, your ear to the ground, your hand on the street, boots on the ground, you know, can you explain like what you see when you say that, you know, um, maybe the black community has, you know, being targeted a little bit more or like indirectly targeted, but you know, so-called like suffer from this problem, like the most, like just because of, um, you know, like multiple different factors over the course of history in the United States. Um, you know, because somebody for me, for example, you know, maybe like a lot of the listeners listening to this podcast don't really understand, you know, what it's like in the United States because we are from Canada and from around the world. So maybe you could kind of paint that picture a little bit more extensively for us so we can kind of have a good visual of what that, what that means to you and something that you see within your community. Well, you know, I'm so glad that you asked that question. You know, obviously, 1600 years ago, in six, year 1600, was the year that the slave trade began in the United States, um, which obviously were natives living here already. And the sugar trade was the absolute first commodity that Black people were traded to, to harvest. It began with the sugar trade in the United States and, and obviously in other colonies where uh, slave trades and, and throughout the diaspora, where other uh, slaves were taken to, um, to help harvest and grow uh, entire nations. And it just so happens that here in the United States, sugar was the first commodity. And so you look at sugar being the reason behind the slave trade and the reason behind many Africans being taken away from their native land and brought to foreign countries like America, to grow and create crop and build civilization being the very substance that's now overly saturated in our communities. So I say 401 years later, we are still slaves to the sugar trade. Wow. What an interesting connection that is because you know, like that, that is the honest truth. Like there's, I don't think that anybody can really argue that, but how many people actually draw that connection? You know, something that, you know, like people were, displaced from their homeland you know put on slave ships and brought over to america to be able to harvest this and now like arguably probably are feeling the the most health impacts from this you know like the the uncanny you know irony behind that is just incredible like i i, I personally have never even thought of something making that connection before but it is the truth like Absolutely. You know, you know, it's something that it took me a little bit of a little bit of time to really fully grasp the conditions that uh, black people and my people have have been exposed to, uh, because a lot of it, I look at high crime rate. Uh, we look at uh, uh, drug abuse and substance abuse and we look at domestic violence in households and we, we look at uh, absent fathers. I mean, you name the condition. We, we learn the traits and behavior from somewhere. And these are the traits and the behaviors of the American way that was not necessarily televised during the time of, of our inception, during the time of us being uh, kind of neutralized into this country. And See, so you'll no, go, go ahead. ahead. And so you'll start to, and, and so I started to think a little bit deeper at 
as to, you know, why is sugar impacting us this way? You, you know, we're, we're working with the American Heart Association with your brain on sugar, looking at the implications of why and how young people are not able to function in the classroom where we have high cases of ADHD, attention deficit disorder. We have high cases of students just not being able to fully function. And what does that look like? A lot of them are just eating sugar for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, even in our agricultural system that's providing the breakfast and the lunch in the classroom. See, and, and so you know, like, it it's is, you, sorry to cut you off, you, like, you make an extremely valid point there about, like, the overconsumption of sugar with our children. Like we were talking about before with, like, the coronavirus, you know, when you overconsume the sugar, then you have higher amounts of like candida in the body. You know, you probably have some uh, SIBO, the small intestinal intestinal bacterial overgrowth. You know, you probably have a disrupted micro gut flora, which like all these things are going to attack your immune system. So with your immune system being so compromised from your diet and what's going on in your body internally, then you throw something like the coronavirus. Would all of these younger, more vulnerable populations, you know, if we're just talking about today's youth, would they be as susceptible to getting something like the coronavirus if they were eating healthy and they were getting the nutritious food that they're supposed to be getting and they should have the absolute right to have access to? Absolutely. And, and priority, you know, and then you look at still being targets to uh, soda ads, whereas soda companies, beverage companies are pretending that black people are immune to this pandemic and all you have to do is drink the soda and people mm-hmm. are going to go and purchase soda Whereas it's causing underlying implications in order to think uh, that, cons- that consuming this product is going to help prevent uh, uh, exposure to another uh, uh, pandemic, another uh, virus, it's, which is completely absurd. And we're still being targeted. And even when you look at the messaging in the advertisement alone, I mean, billions of dollars being spent in advertisement and targeted in Black communities. Well, and let's face it, you know, because a lot of these companies are leveraging black athletes to be able to promote products, you know, so like, you know, where we like, I would idolize like, like any athlete of any demographic, because I just I'm very athletic myself, but I could see how there'd be a greater connection to like, a young black man idolizing somebody like LeBron James, if they're holding a Coca Cola, you know, so like, like, I can see your point where a lot of these people uh, or a lot of these athletes that are sponsored by these companies or have influence around these companies, like there, there definitely is direct correlations, you know, with where, you know, black people are being um, targeted probably to a greater degree than like what white people are or Hispanic people or anybody of any other demographic. Absolutely. And, and these are the claims that we are, even to this current election process, the claims as to the severity and the need in the 2020 election to have a Black agenda around Black health, around Black economics. And, and, and obviously, um, other people are impacted by this. But right now, we're looking at the, the most severe implications of you know, health and policy, ec- health economics and education, and why children are not being able to, to function, and you know, public safety, and the number of children that have been put in red line communities and put in uh, with poor health conditions are now lashing out at each other, obviously, because they're the closest. And the homicide rate continues to increase. And so we've made the connection all the way around the spectrum to how we behave in our society today and why we must confront these issues head on, discuss them head on, and really work to create solutions around them. 
like what are what are some of the measures that you see or what are some of the you know like the tax tactics that you guys are implementing to be able to help push this like are you um like when it comes to like policy or discouraging athletes you know to accept sponsorship deals or promoting these products or you know getting companies to change the advertising in your communities like what are some of the things that you guys are working on some of the strategies that you're working on right now so the first thing is that obviously there is uh, tax legislation, uh, the the Healthy Beverage Act is uh, legislation that is um, currently being proposed here in Washington, D.C. And one of the things the Healthy Beverage Act seeks to do is to, uh, uh, to help put proper fruits and vegetables in the classroom, to fund healthy beverage options, healthy food options for students in the classroom. It wants to fund uh, gardening for people, uh, fun of gardening in the community where people are able to grow their own heart and grow and possess their own crops. Uh, so we're wanting to, uh, there's, so there's a number of things with that part. And so we're looking to see, well, how do we put more money or those dollars back into families' pockets to increase the, the income that they're already receiving? As you know, our current administration is seeking to reduce the food assistance program in these in these poor communities. And See, and so that's where, on top of, sorry, I think I, and that's and that's where Michelle Obama was such a, a strong ally because you know her dedication to be able to changing um, like you know food awareness to parents and to children, you know, was like uncanny. Like she was doing an absolutely incredible job, and I don't think a lot of people know how uh, how hard she was pushing the agenda of bringing healthy food options, fresh gardening, you know, and gardening related techniques to children in schools. You know, not only in like the DC area, but just around the country um, in general. Like, do you feel that um, when Michelle Brock left office, that some of that was lost, or um, like where do you kind of feel as though, like you said, the current administration is like receding the funding, but do you feel like there's still like an awareness around educating families and children you know, about making healthier food options with the current administration, just in case if they do get in again? So that's what we're here to do while we're having this conversation. Uh, we are very much so pushing what's called the Black Agenda. We have a, a Black Agenda document that's circulating throughout both political parties. Uh, we have a Black Agenda campaign uh, a debate, uh, the Black debate that's happening on March 30th. We are really targeting these uh, specific issues around Black health. Um, in order to enhance the quality of life. And so, yes, a lot of the conversations did stop happening after uh, Michelle Obama left. And so we're now organizing grassroots to uh, build a momentum to get these conversations happening on the national platform. And you kind of brought something up that usually is where things like this get lost. So, you know, maybe um, could you outline some of the either acceptance uh, or to the counter of what you got to both going cross parties with this, like, you know, Republican or demographic, are you guys receiving really positive feedback from both something that they're neither party is going to stand against, or do you get a little bit of pushback from more from one than the other? Well, there's always going to be pushback um, until people are willing to actually look at the numbers to help make it make sense. Uh, the most receptive, I must say, we've received is from the Biden campaign. Uh, Joe Biden's campaign was most receptive of all uh, the other the other organizations to reviewing and looking at the numbers to try to make them make sense. And I and I think that we're going to continue to push the needle on that. I think by the time we get around to the debate on the 30th, 
uh, that we'll have some interesting responses coming from both sides. Oh, that, that must be really encouraging, you know, like just seeing a little bit of light on the end of the tunnel where you like both political parties can, you know, join onto this ship and really push this agenda because that's, that's what it needs is some unity amongst parties. So it's something that there's a coalition force just in government to be able to want to create health. Because um, have you heard of any of the statistics, like if the, um, if the healthcare keeps going the way it's going in the States by 2040? Um, almost 100% of the American federal budget will be spent on healthcare-related um, costs. Now, is that is that something that's kind of fake news that's out there? Is that real? Like, have have you heard of anything like that? So, there is a lot of information. I mean, there's a lot of conversations around the healthcare, not specifically dealing with the issues around diabetes, which is why this conversation is important. Not specifically dealing with all of the health challenges. That overconsumption of sugar is is creating uh, mental health from everything from mental health and energy and depression. So that, you know it's happening around this, and so really it's it's at such a massive level is that we'll, folks are having a difficult time making that connection, and then now going to go review and research the data. And I'm going to share something with you uh, that we did that one of our researchers did find. Uh, in this connection to, um, it's a U.S. sugary analysis. Uh, it's by John C. Bain and Amani el -Ubid. It is dealing with the agriculture policy in disarray, uh, reforming the farm. And just a summary, it says, we review the key features of the U.S. sugar program and its welfare, trade, and world price implications. The program is a proto-Tuscan policy, which increases the domestic price of sugar above the corresponding world price. It restricts imports of raw and refined sugar, depresses world sugar prices, and substantially changes the mix of sweeteners used in processed foods. Domestic markets are distorted. Sugar users are effectively uh, taxed by the program, and sugar producers are, are subsidized by it. So we're protecting the producers of the sugar, which is where the tax, you know, the, the tax burden should be held on. Uh, and then it says the welfare transfer to sugar growers and processors is quite large in the aggregate, hovering around $1.2 billion. And this is if losses in households are diffused around about $10 per person uh, each year. But largely for the population as a whole, the range of 2.4 to 4 billion in net welfare losses um, are smaller and are in order of this 0.1 billion. So these are just gains. Uh, these are just looking at worldwide how much consumers are overtaxed on the product and, and the implications and the impact of the product already. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yep, absolutely. You know, and, see, uh, and like the the astonishing part behind this is then you look at the, the flip side of that, you know, if we're creating um, like programs for like subsidies to be able to like, you know, fund back, um, you know, but again, like that doesn't look at anything to do with like the actual taxation on the, the healthcare system, you know, for like you said, like, you know, there's arguably probably a, a pretty steep top 10 list. You know, that all range probably from about like the $8,000 per year to $15,000 per year, what it costs for healthcare coverage and healthcare taxation, you know, on healthcare system. You know, so, you know, like where we're giving money back to sugar companies, but about giving money back to this system, 
you know, that has to like actually help all of these people once they experience the negative, um, you know, aspects of overconsuming sugar, you know, like things like diabetes and heart disease and obesity and, you know, potential blindness and loss of limbs. And, you know, like the list just goes on and on and on, you know, and I, I find that to be the hardest part about why people are so resistant to wanting to be able to tax the sugar industry to be able to help fund the healthcare costs because we're all funding the healthcare costs and we're not getting the kickbacks like what the sugar industry is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things that the Healthy Beverage Act is seeking to do is to take those dollars and put them right back into impacted communities. And so, you know, we've been monitoring this process closely and looking to uh, gain feedback from more community stakeholders on how do we make sure that we enhance the bill and that tracking the dollar to make sure we're meeting the bottom line. How long have you guys been working on this project for? I became aware of this initiative in October, mm -hmm. uh, uh, specifically, but around the health overall issues for the last year and a half. Who was kind of like the primary spearheader, like at the beginning, like, like who was the first person that uh, kind of like laid this into conception and say like, hey, we need to make this a priority. We need to get this, you know, bill in front of Congress. We need to be able to, to really push this agenda and open people's eyes. Is there, is there a singular person or, you know, like, is there a foundation you know, society that can push this? Um, I think black people across the world and across the country uh, are, 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 are sick of being the last and the least. You know, um, I would say, you know, in my community, I have been one of the people leading in the Black conversations. We at Radio, uh, Kimon Freeman, uh, uh, the DC Greens. There's an organization who don't meet my health. Uh, the Green Scheme. There's a great, great number of people that are focused directly in the health arena, but specifically making the correlations between the health implications and the history of Black people in this country. A lot of that pushing the needle has been done by my office. Um, and a lot of the uh, organizers, organizers that we act radio, and I want to thank people for really, um, even though it's it, it's obviously a lot to consume, for taking the time uh, to really take to really look and consider the, the devastating impact and the historic implications. Can I ask you like a like a pretty candid question, and if you if you don't mind it, you know, again being in Canada, especially in our like isolated little bubble here in Vancouver. Um, I, I say this just because of a few comments that you've made and just a lot of the stuff that I see um, on TV and in the news. Do you feel like um, like the black community when they take issue with something that affects black people that it stays too much inside of the black community and doesn't become more of a national issue? Not not because black people want that, but do you feel like there's an overall underlying narrative that you know like maybe they're like the voices should be greater. They should be more well heard. They should be, you know, more widely accepted about how this is affecting the black community. Absolutely. Uh, you know, platforms like yours, my Asian friends are, are taking a stand on, uh, on our behalf. Now they're being attacked for uh, being Asian and maybe now see what that feels like a little bit because of this coronavirus. Uh, uh, you know, we have our Caucasian, my Caucasian friends are taking a stand on Black issues. I think that more and more people are um, becoming aware of uh, of the historic implications, and, and there are scholars who are also putting information and data out there 
um, that it's going to take all of us that really care about humanity because it's really not just a black community issue. Um, it's a national issue. You know, what's impacting one community impacts all of our communities. Yeah, absolutely. So we and, want to thank you know, platforms like yours around the country that's been helping to amplify our messages. Yeah, and you know, and you make a really good point because I, you know, like obviously different communities keep, you know, getting affected by you know by different, you know, like issues that keep getting brought up. And like you said, like you know, right now, you know, with Asian people and the coronavirus and like the like the stigmas that are, you know, um, all laid upon, you know, Asian people because of this. I actually find it really disheartening because we really undervalue our global community when we do do that. And it's just, it's shocking yeah. to me that we still in today's day and age, because the thing is, if we have to stop for a second and realize that if we are going to even for one second entertain that this is an Asian problem or of Asian yeah. origin, there's an underlying amount of racism that is also attached to that. Because again, like the, we only have Asian people, black people, white people, because we choose to look at the world like that. We choose not to be able to look at like this is our global community's problem. Yeah, and exactly. That's, and that's what's interesting is that every other disease, every other you know virus that you see surface seems to have some implications of race. Mm -hmm. It seems to have implications of who the uh, impacted parties are, or rather the parties who are the, the cause for the virus or the cause for the disease and, you know, looking to, you know, make it someone else's fault, essentially, um, because people, are, you know, we play the blame game. People are looking to where to point the finger um, as to who to make responsible um, for, you know, said viruses, said, said diseases, said problems. And something that Rihanna said, you know, Rihanna is a global pop, art, pop artist who, you know, really impacts and, you know, influences change. You know, she said, this is not about it being a black people problem or a poor people problem. You know, this isn't our problem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think when she made that statement, you know, publicly, um, while she, as she was accepting a humanitarian award, I believe, at the NAACP awards, uh, I think people really, it resonated with a lot of people. And more conversations like that is what's going to change the narrative. It actually, you know, it, it really is, you know, because like, as you say that, and you know, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I actually, I, I don't think that I am, is, you know, like when we list all these things, you know, like, you know, when we had SARS and, you know, like avian flu and, um, you know, now we have with like the coronavirus and like Ebola, like I actually seen something The what segued me into this like narrative is a couple of days ago, I seen like how every election cycle in the United States, there's always seems to be like some global virus attached to every it for like the last time. like 10 oh, years. So, so you caught on to that too then, huh? Yeah. And then, you know, like, but the one thing, like, as you were just like speaking there, if we kind of just really dip into like the unfortunate part about this is like, where's like the white people problem? You know, where's like the, where's like the white people created like this virus? Cause we're like, it just seems like it's, everybody else creating viruses except for white people and i just act when you said that i just thought I'm like when was last people or last time like like an entire culture of white people got blamed for starting a virus and they were like we don't like white people don't like wash their hands and they're not super sanitary like we're just we could just as easily cause like a global outbreak is like any other culture or demographic in the world but um i don't think i've ever heard of that and like it seems to me extremely unrealistic that 
like every other demographic in the world could create a potential global pandemic except for white people. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. Wow. And I, I wow. But like, I, well, I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, do you, do you agree with that or do you not? Like, I, I actually don't know. I, I, you know, you, to, to your point, you know, to your point of me introducing you to the 401 years of sugar trade and still being slaves to that, I think this is the first time I've really considered the, you know, it, it was being said historically that uh, uh, that disease was brought to America from colonizers. That was the original uh, conversation around disease in uh, the United States. And so since then, as it relates to viral issues like this, that has obviously gone mainstream and got a mainstream media attention, uh, no. I have not, uh, you know, it, it was the, you know, it was the understanding of historians that disease heavily came from European descent, heavily came from uh, those who colonized the Americas as the foundation and, you know, creation of this country. And so that was the stigma that I am aware of attached to Caucasian uh, settlers. But since that kind of historic reference and in the more recent years of, of viral issues around elections, no, I have not. And, and I could be like, I, I could very easily, because I, I throw Western culture under the bus continually all the time, because I actually feel like that we've just really, we've come off the, the wheels have come off the bus in Western culture in so many different ways. I just, I pick on health and nutrition the most. But if I had to say that any, any specific race, not that I want to attach to race, but if I, just, if I had to generalize it, I would almost say that white people would be responsible for creating things like obesity and diabetes and heart disease, specifically because when you look at like a lot of the, like the plantations, you know, were owned by white people, all the lobbying has been done like on behalf of typically like white owners historically and even now. And you know, like a lot of these companies are led by white people that, you know, are like hiring and coming up with like the marketing campaigns. For this. So it's like, you know, if you want to look at probably who has the biggest global impact on any pandemic, it probably would yeah. be white people because like we've, because we've encouraged and we've, you know, and like, like something to me that is just horribly disgusting is when we allow big food to be able to hire clinical psychologists to be able to enter their R&D departments, to be able to specifically create combinations of foods that are so highly addictive and packaging that mm. is so highly stimulating that you cannot walk past it in a grocery store, no matter what demographic and socioeconomic background you come from, because you are immediately drawn to it. Because when you see that package, your serotonin levels go up, they trigger the response of the taste and the feel like the texture and the flavor in your mouth. And then you consume it and it validates the packaging. That's why there's so many researchers that are saying we need bland packaging, you know, but again, like this all comes back down to like, you know, when are we going to make this change? No matter who may quote unquote be responsible for it. But when we just start yeah. taking a lot more of a vested interest in like thinking like, Hey, we need change no matter who's at the top whoever started this no matter what is going on like like the sugar consumption in north america and what we spread around the world is is absolutely astonishing and if these companies have changed their formulas in other countries 
because they've been deemed to be having too much sugar in them. Why are we still allowing them to be able to sell the concentrations that have way more sugar in them here? That's the part that is astonishing to me as well. You, you know, you've, you've brought some points to my attention that I'm going to need to, 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 to really dive into a bit more here, but you look at the, you look at the economic advantage of the white community that are mostly owned that are, that are majority ownership of the causes of these illnesses and uh, products that are pushing uh, the serotonin in our communities is that they have the greatest to gain, uh, you know, whether it be direct product sale, whether it be direct uh, stock market value, uh, gross domestic uh, product price, uh, they have the most to gain whether it be through the health privatizing insurance and, you know, uh, those that are seeking to get well and, and using their facilities because they're majority owning them. And so it's very much so interesting um, to double-sided sword that we're operating in. Of fighting well, a, a, you know. And could you imagine how like unwell received, I guess I'd probably pick some poor choice of words there if I just made some words up to be honest, but could you imagine like what the narrative would be if a predominantly black owned media company or several predominantly black owned media companies started creating a narrative around white people being the direct origin and the correlation to diabetes and heart disease and the trillions of dollars that has cost the American healthcare system. Could you imagine what that would look like? Except for like all of these media companies are more than willing to like point the finger at China and Wuhan saying that like, this is their like Chinese people are responsible for this and you know like carriers and like this, that, and the next thing. But like, could you imagine if the tables were flipped, like what that narrative would actually look like and like the unrest that something like that would cause? Oh, absolutely. There would be lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit. But it's just like you, you would never see that on like the flip side. And like, like, and I guess like these are kind of some of the roots of the problems that we still see in our cultures where as much as we want to say there's not cultural divides or demographic divides or socioeconomic divides, like I think like these, once you actually start having real conversations, and your eyes kind of become opened a little bit. And you're just like, wow, like we can, you know, kind of like pick into this a little bit, but just nobody wants to have these kind of conversations because they are too offensive. Like I can already think in my well, mind, like when people consider that all of these entities began and gained their wealth from the slave trade. Consider 401 years later the multitude of angles that we are still slaves to the sugar trade. Mm -hmm. absolutely and and that is that is a it is a multi-dimensional conversation because there are the property the profit margin off of the, uh, the commodity that we helped to harvest 401 years ago is impacting not only our our, our health directly at the counter of what we're purchasing it's impacting you know whether or not we get to see a doctor because of said product at the counter it's highly trading on the stock market so there's another profit margin and then you know you may not even be a person that's qualified to receive the services you need for being a recipient of highly marketed products yeah can i ask you a question you know in you know something doesn't immediately come to mind which i'm i'm almost sure that it will but you can obviously take some time to be able to think about it if you need so say like sugar cane for example that's harvested in in other countries that's pick an easy one, just say Costa Rica, for example. Now, do yeah. you think that 
when an American-based company, surely for profits, will um, you know buy land in a different country where land is cheaper and labor is cheaper, that that is like a semi-new age version of like hybrid slavery? Because it's not like the a lot of these you know people in these countries I necessarily are is, like. Go ahead. It wouldn't be considered slavery more so than it would be considered. There is a term for this. Um, it is a term for oppressive um, uh, economic. It's, it's, it's an economic uh, term that I'm going to look up because. I find look it at to, the economic- yeah, I was just gonna say I find it to be interesting because I I don't think it's any secret that when labor costs go up in one country you know, most companies will find another country to be able to operate in where costs are cheaper, which kind of forces, you know, like that underlying competition of making sure that, um, yeah. that labor costs and production co- costs and manufacturing costs are kept to the absolute bare minimum, you know, which that yeah. directly affects people's quality of life. And when you look at like directly yeah. affecting people's quality of life, you're kind of, you know, like, lack for a better example, like enslaving them to conditions that they can never really get out of. I guess that's kind of where my yeah. mindset was when I was thinking about just yeah. like from like the, like the sky high view. I'm just saying, well, if somebody only ever has the hope of maybe making like five cents a day American, like how did, how is that not forcing them into conditions that is not really necessarily that much more beneficial for them? Because if, they do complain or they do not want to work in that kind of environment or you know if their local governments try to change we we do know that these companies would move to a different country like that is absolutely yeah sense. yeah i'm looking at the i'm looking at labor laws and i'm looking at cheap labor there's something uh, there are ways claims but there's something that, like they call them consider them sweatshops uh, I'm, and i'm trying to get to to your point though the overarching point is that it is a form of of, of oppression. Yes, mm-hmm. that is the word. It is absolute economic oppression, mm-hmm. uh, uh, economic uh, depression, uh, intentionally. Uh, and you look at what's happening in China. I mean, places like China, Indonesia, you know, are 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 are, are obviously forced into these cheap labor types of positions and even whereas you look at in american society is there also equivalent to the prison industrial complex mm-hmm. yep um and so you, the colonization of whiteness is is in itself a disease mm-hmm. yeah and you really look at it like you know and you brought like a well two really good points there but like one you know being like the american you know um prison industrial complex about like if you look at like what some of this stuff well pretty much the only things they really serve in prison are a lot of these like high sugary um you know like like calorie dense foods by weight of sugar and you know you think of like you know like all the issues that stem with that you know things like like adhd and you know you know different like you know mental health related concerns around like the overconsumption of sugar and then you trap somebody in a box or you trap them in yeah. a box with a bunch of other people who are, you know, all, you know, jacked up on, you know, like pop or, you know, different sugar related products and all that kind of stuff, like day in and day out. And you expect there to be no conflict. And then, you know, like you kind of have like, you know, a pay for prisoner system that wants, you know, like, 
you know, people to be in prison in the United States, which turns out to be like an extremely high demographic of, you know, young black men. Like you, like you, you can really see like how all these things are interconnected. But as soon as you start having a conversation with the, about it, like people just want to stop the conversation immediately because, you know, they just, they, a lot of people I find like refuse to actually believe or wanted to buy into like the education that all these things are linked. They're not different problems. They're not, you know, category A, category B, category C. They're all a part of the alphabet. And, you know, to your point, there's a new article by Fortune.com that talks about retail and the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And so, obviously, China is one of those countries where we look at the, uh, the sweatshops, you know, and, and, and Coca-Cola is there capitalizing off of that. Uh, it says coronavirus in all caps is affecting everything, even Diet Coke. Ah, look at the look at look at us coming back full circle again here. Yeah, Coca-Cola warns of possible sweetener shortages for beverages included Diet Coke, Powerade, and Powerade if COVID-19 outbreak drags on. This is by Chris Morris, and it was published March third, um, twenty twenty this year. People are already hoarding masks, hand sanitizers, and canned goods because of the virus uh, outbreak, the coronavirus outbreak. Could Diet Coke be next? Coca-Cola Company, in filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission on Monday, said it depends on Chinese suppliers for sweeteners that are a key ingredient to the popular diet soda. The company also warned of possible supply chain issues in the long term should the outbreak continue to grow? Because obviously planes are being grounded, which means that they're not able to get in their supply. Mm -hmm. So this is just, and the article goes on with more information. I'm happy to share it with you. I'm actually probably going to share it publicly on my platform. I'm on all platforms at Crawford at large, uh, C-R-A-W-F-O-R-D at large, at, G, uh, at large. Um, and, and I'm going to be talking about this on, on my platform. Hello. Yeah, yeah. Feel free to share. I oh, you can absolutely just keep reading on on that on that article because I think things like that, like where where we look at, like those are the next steps. You know, because first it's been the hand sanitizer wars. You know, then it was the toilet paper wars, which are still going on right now, like up here. I don't know what they're like in the United States right now. You know, but like like these are things because it's all of it's going to get into our addictions next. You know, like things like hand go. sanitizer and you know like toilet paper, like these kind of like rough necessities obviously toilet paper a little bit more than hand sanitizer you know but like when does it get into our addictions you know like well when we look at it you know like you said like diet coke and all these products and stuff like that are getting a lot of their stuff from china now are people thinking about that when they drink their diet coke or when they get their coke or Absolutely any of their not. products that like hey i could get Absolutely. the coronavirus from this because the raw materials in this pot right now are from china and but people will want to, if they see, and like I say this with absolute disgust, but like when people see, you know, potentially somebody who might be Chinese, who's not even Chinese, who might just be, you know, well, is just a, a normal regular person, but might walk a little bit slightly over to the side or walk across the street or, you know, like do these things that are just like unnatural, awful behavior, but they'll go right up to the shelf and nurse their addiction by grabbing their Diet Coke and consuming that because they, again, is the miseducation because they refuse to believe that there's a connection to their Diet Coke, but they can see the person who should look just like them to them, but may walk a few feet over from them. Absolutely. 
You know, and I'll just read the very next line. It talks about the key ingredient is called sucralose. Am I pronouncing this correctly? Sucralose. 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 Yes. It's used in everything from Diet Coke to Powerade to Dizani flavored water. Get that. Mm-hmm. Coke says it's implementing procedures to procure the ingredient from other sources and does not foresee a short-term impact. But it, but said it could experience tighter supplies in the long term. As a result of the outbreak of the novel coronavirus, our suppliers in China have experienced some delays in the production and the export of these ingredients. The company said in its filing, we have initiated contingency supply plans and do not foresee a short-term impact due to these delays. However, we may see tighter supplies of some of these ingredients in the long term should production or export uh, operations in China deteriorate. But here's what they're telling in this article is that it's that they're even putting sugar in the water yeah well in texas was the first state that actually legitimately wanted to do that on a municipal level was to put sugar in the water supply just to encourage people to be able to drink more water i think that was about a decade ago now and i don't think it actually went through but like that that's the astonishing part about the crippling <laughs> control that sugar has over um, you know, like our economy, our citizens and, you know, like our politics in both of our countries, which is like absolutely just bananas to me. But, you know, I think the the one thing that I want to bring up when you read that article, like what I see. So if a company raises its prices, you know, for reasons like this, because like we can obviously see, like basically what you're saying is Diet Coke and like all in these power rate and sign flavor waters. But they're saying in about six months, prices are going to go up in a year. They'll probably go up a little bit more. But when people see that impact, they're they're not really going to complain. They're like, oh, you know, like my Diet Coke gone up this. They might complain a little bit. However, if somebody said, we're going to put a 20% tax on this sugary drink because we want to help pay for health care, you're like, oh, okay, no, that's totally – like that people get so upset. There you go. Because guess what? They, have the, they are doing it anyway. They're increasing yeah. the price themselves without there being an opportunity to re- redirect those funds. Yeah. And, you know, and like, like what is wrong with us when we perceive these situations? Like a company wants to increase its profits or stabilize its profits. So they raise its price. And we just look at that. That's par for the course. That's inflation. I understand that. Blah, blah, blah. Like people can justify that. However, if we're like our citizens are dying, like legitimately yeah. nobody can argue that our citizens are not dying. They are. Diabetes is directly linked to lifestyle and has everything to do with the overconsumption of sugary-based products and a lack of exercise or diet, this, that, and the next thing. But wait, as soon as but, you talk about issuing a tax field up, cover the cost of those because of that, people are absolutely up in arms. But you know what's also interesting is this goes back to the original aspect of these companies not even being transparent about the sugar consumption that they're putting in the drinks because who knew that designing water had sugar in it? Yeah, it would be interesting to be able to look at Layla and just see, like, you know, like, if that's listed or promoted or, you know, like, where that would actually be on the label. And, you know, maybe it's one of those things where it's, like, interestingly or put very interestingly, like, the side, maybe the little leaf that said it's made with a plant-based uh, plastic or, you know, maybe something along those lines. But you can see all that little marketing that would hide that, you know, even if it is readily available information on that package. We have a lot to talk about and a long way to go. Yeah, you know, and, you know, really when it comes down to me, like what I look at, like where you said, like the transparency, 
You know, even when there is yeah. transfers, even when there's people like you who's willing to say, I want to be able to, you know, partake on a national voice. I want to be able to create a national platform. I am going to get people to join a coalition force field to get this message out there. How much resistance do you feel? And how much does that shock you if you do feel resistance by it? So the resistance oftentimes comes from the education around said subject because at face value, it looks like a poverty tax. At face value, it looks like we're penalizing people for living in poor and black communities. But the reality of it is, is that these are these are increases in prices and taxes that these entities are slowly raking up on their own that we have no control over unless we demand a tax on it. And, you know, like, do, you, do we feel like that there's a little bit of um, governmental responsibility that, you know, obviously these sugar companies have lobbied the government to be able to keep things in the status quo alive? Like, like in our government is supposed to represent us in, in our best interest, you know, but like if our citizens are dying by the thousands, you know, each year from you know, like conditions like diabetes, but then we want to over publicize the coronavirus, but forget that just diabetes alone kills thousands of people in America every single year, which doesn't seem to be a, a global pandemic or just to receive the national attention. Talked about should. it all. Yeah, like, you know, like, where's the responsibility of our government to actually stand up to big food and say, I love your money, but, you know, we have to start yeah. taking our citizens, you know, into consideration because at the end of the day, no matter how much money big food is giving the government, the citizens give them more. It really is the straight this is, their, this is the government's opportunity to say, you know, one, there's two parts to this, is that there are your citizens who feel that, that, you know, government is, you know, big government has their hands in too much already. But then there's a reality that there's a responsibility the government has to protect its citizens, which, as you can see, by the fact that we've allowed so much overconsumption and overlooked so much of the reality of these implications, that they really have not, uh, have not done their due diligence. So, so I think that you know, you're going to, we're going to have to force the hand by continuing to have these conversations. Yeah. Um, who do you think, uh, like political party, whether Republicans or Democrats, like who, who do you think has the stronger platform for health and wellness, um, which would obviously incorporate like sugar and, you know, um, sugar related products and, you know, possible sugar taxes. Like, like, who do you think, um, you know, just with your being in Washington, DC and kind of hearing a little bit more of the narrative, uh, like which, which political platform has like, like the citizens' health and wellness of greater concern? That would be the Democratic Party at this present time, for sure. Uh, they seem to be more concerned with, with global health care and understanding the need for coverage based on, you know, many families being denied. And um, they are the party that I would say is the most inclined to ensure that universal health care and health coverage, because they are two different things, unfortunately. Um, is prevalent in the in the in the debate around healthcare. So you know they get the credit for that, um, but it's also you know, a lot to be said about you know what is that. It, there's also a difference in what does that look like among the party itself. So then there's the the concern and understanding the need on in both parties, and then there's a difference in opinion as to how it needs to be executed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you think? Do you 
do you believe, because I think it was, uh, what's his name, Andrew Yang? Is that his name, Andrew Yang? Uh, uh-huh. That was running for, like, in one of his primary, um, like, thrust for presidency was the universal basic income, I believe. Um, yeah. uh, do you think, like, that something along the lines of a universal basic income would help allow people to be able to live healthier, um, active lives? Or do you think that people are a creature of habit, it's tough to teach an old dog new tricks, and it would just be a little bit more of the same problem. I think Andrew Yang had an incredible plan that needs to be carefully reviewed and considered, um, and obviously pulled out the pieces that make the most sense. Um, I think that it's in, that we are living in a time where we must look at all of the policy options and and take out what's robust in all of them. You know, because if any one of us had all of the solutions, then perhaps we would not be in the conditions that we're in. So I think that we have to be willing to share ideas and we have to be willing to adopt ideas. Like Elizabeth Warren had great policy ideas. I think, you know, she was would have been an incredible candidate uh, for the incredible Amer- president and leader for the American people. Um, but unfortunately, America didn't see it that way. But we still must review and adopt a lot of what they put out there in their policy platforms uh, or else uh, we're going to get the, the shortage of the stick continuously. Yeah. You know, and is like, do you think that like we are starting to, and you know, and by we, I guess I should say um, Americans are, are getting to kind of a place because, you know, there's, there's going to be so many widespread issues and, you know, you can really land on, you know, kind of like either side, you know, some things, you know, you might be a little bit more Republican about and some things you might be a little bit more Democratic about. Um, that there needs to be kind of like a change of the way like government is run so that it can actually represent the people in a lot better fashion? Government reform is absolutely necessary and needed. I think more and more people are trying to look at what does that look like. Um, But, you know, the Trump administration has done just so much damage that there is a lot of work to just clean up before we can even get into the conversation about reform. What does that look like to you? Like as a as an American citizen, as a, a woman, as a black woman, you know, in Washington, D.C., you know, just just faced with a lot of um, like a lot of different perspectives, you know, than somebody like me would have. Uh, like, like, what does that look like to you? Like if you've seen government reform and how you could, you know, see the changes that that you see that would be beneficial to the country. Like, what does that look like in your eyes? I think government reform first looks like restorative justice to black descendants of slavery. I think that's the very first state reconciliation that must happen because it addresses health disparities, income disparities. Um, it puts America back to work. It puts money back in rotation for businesses and economic growth. Um, until and we, that's the first step. We must address uh, those such disparities in this country. And then we then that looks at our healthcare system. It forces us to look at uh, our agricultural system. You know, the ability to grow and harvest crops. Where currently President Trump is looking to increase the amount of, of bonds that agriculturalists and farmers will have to pay just for security, which that ends up translating into higher prices in our grocery stores and, and maybe even you know food that's not even fully vetted properly. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at starting in agriculture and, and health 
uh, and then we're looking at our health care system, and obviously universal health care is necessary um, for the quality of life, for maintaining the quality of life and, you know, enhancing our economic and economic opportunities. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we look at education reform. Um, we must not continue to uh, overlook students and their need to have a diverse um, educational experience. There's no person that learns the exact same way. We mm-hmm. consistently standardize test children uh, that, are not, that are not performing well because we're transitioning them to the, the, the penitentiary and the justice system. You know, still to this day, um, they're able to determine the population of, of, of prisoners based on third grade test scores. Oh, wow. Kid, do you know a little bit more information on that? Like that, that kind of intrigues me and astonishes me like at, at the same time, like, do you do you have a little bit more um, like perspective or education on that? Like I just I would like to know. Absolutely, you know you 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 put people again. You look at the living conditions of the types of students that are being a part of this kind of study, if you will, uh, living in poor and economically disadvantaged communities, and you know being tested through substitute standardized testing on their ability to retain uh, not to retain information, but to to regurgitate standardized information, which is not the way every student learns. Mm -hmm. And so in those instances, these children are subject to lower test scores and uh, uh, not performing at the highest level. And again, these children are then subject to flunking and failing school just based on testing, just testing out alone. Oh, that's incredible. Again, if you don't mind me asking you this question, it's something I can't even remember where I heard it a, a few months ago, but it it actually kind of made absolute sense to me. I would just like to get your perspective on it. Um, do you think that Americans should do away with Black History Month and just make it history in general? Just incorporate, you know, like 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 Black people's contribution to American history isn't like all history. It doesn't have to be just a month so that it's talked about all year round, not just emphasized one month out of the year? Well, out of respect to the ancestors who felt the importance of of creating Black History Month and the need for it to be um, in February, I think that two parts is that uh, it is American history, it is Black history, it is world history, mm-hmm. and the, the problem therein lies is that we've had to fight for our history as it, its totality to be included in the system, whereas your general history lesson would access out of those books. Mm. And so it's, it's, it's almost as if this is a problem, obviously, that America created by trying to wipe away the historic reference and contributions that Black people have made to society yeah. by keeping us out of those history books as they've done, um, which makes it a little bit complicated to say, you know, can we, it, it, it deteriorates the trust factor to yeah. say, can we trust America with our history and, mm-hmm. and, and, and not the continuous uh, uh, attempt to distort it. Yeah, because I think our education so, and our history system does that in general, uh, most, mostly by the way of only telling one side of the story. Like, it, and I think like our, our education system is notorious for that, like only teaching like Canada's contribution, only teaching um, you know, like America's contribution to, you know, global conflicts and, you know, different uh, global issues, you know, and only really teaching, you know, like 
like white um, contributions and stuff. Because like like we know, like like there's no denying that there's kind of a little bit of distortion that if you kind of look in most history books, it kind of seems like white people have kind of invented everything in the world. And like, I'm not, I'm not proud of that. And, and that's why I like that there is a black history month, but I do see the the benefit in having it is like, you know, incorporating more, well, I think more it's, black it's inventors. Worth having a powerful conversation about, yeah. I think that we can definitely see where the, the lack of trust lies. Yeah. Um, in, you know, trusting America to say we're going to do the right thing because we can't even get, uh, you know, the right, do the right thing with black, black people now receiving it's just due for building this country. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, what do you have? Sorry, go ahead. ahead. What do you have a long way to go? (laughs) I'll let you go ahead. You go ahead. No, go ahead and ask your question because I want to make sure that I, because I feel like you're going to ask what I'm referencing. Yeah, what I was, well, what I was going to say is, you know, like, and again, like, I just, I, I really value people's perspective. And I think it gives a lot of other people food for thought when I, when I ask people, like, what, what their definition is, or like, what they see is like the vision, you know, like for change, or like, like what you would think is like, like kind of like a preferred case scenario, you know, specifically around you know, like, like black people in America, black history in America, you know, like just, you know, really that sense of like overarching inclusion and like there being this now harmonious synergistic relationship amongst history and citizens and, you know, just like from a national perspective in America, like what, what does that look like to you or what does that journey look like or what does the end result look like to you? Well, if we just take a look at the reparations uh, claims, that have been paid out uh, in this country. Uh, I think that we have, again, overlooked Black Americans in those claims. I'll give you some some references really quickly on the entities that have received claims in America, rightfully so, beginning in, look at it, 19, uh, beginning in 1971, Alaska Natives received a one billion settlement plus forty-four million acres. Nineteen seventy-six, two point three million dollar settlement to the Ottawa's of Michigan. Nineteen eighty, uh, we were there were eighty-one million paid by U.S. government in settlement to the claimants of Oregon. In reparations, there was a settlement of three point nine million paid uh, settlement to Three Mile Island nuclear plant radiation victims. Nineteen eighty-five, one hundred and five million to the Sioux, South Dakota. Uh, uh, Natives. Then you look at again in 1985, 12.3 million to the Simoleons of Florida, 31 million in 85 to the Chippewas of Wisconsin, 86. There was a 39 million dollar 1939 treaty. The Idaho's of Michigan. So, so this country has a history of 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 of, of, of oppressing people, <laughs> and all of these people, all of the entities that this country has oppressed have received a sense of reparation settlement except black people in America who have gone through obviously uh, slavery uh, started in in 1600s and then you look at from 1865 uh, uh, Jim Crow land theft uh, convict leasing there are still deeds to this day that that says that black people are not allowed to inherit the deed to the property 
Well, and isn't so that how the red zone um, terminology kind of came into existence in general that you alluded to earlier in our conversation? Like, weren't red zones considered to be like like black only neighborhoods where where old, like black people could buy houses because they weren't allowed well, to buy houses in white neighborhoods? It wasn't about buying the houses. They were just stricken to those communities uh, uh, to live there. And a lot of the conditions were very poor. So it wasn't even about ownership because mm -hmm. ownership was what we were blocked out of for many years. Yeah. Um, the red line was just about, so we, we want, this is, the, this is where we want to, you know, put black people in subsidized housing, but we're going to create opportunities for wealth and ownership in other areas and other parts of the city. Mm -hmm. And that's where white people were able to capitalize and build and pass down generational wealth through land ownership and home ownership that we were systemically shut out of. Yeah. And, you know, I like it as we've been talking, like a lot of stuff just keeps flowing through my mind. And I, and I apologize that we've kind of floated back and forth between like health and nutrition, sugar tax and, and black history. But oh, I did. I feel like I, I just have a lot of questions. And I hope you don't mind me, me asking that. Um, like there's this this famous operation that happened in World War II called Operation Paperclip, where they they like basically Americans captured like a lot of these like Nazi scientists and you know and they brought them over to America to be able to work on um, any like different projects. Now I don't think it's like any secret that a lot of a lot of cultures from around the world, you know, like thousands of years ago, like went to Africa to be able to seek out education you know, from like people in Africa, like I, I find it to be like ironic now that we're having like all of like this in-depth conversation about black history that like, how did it go from like people around the world seeking, you know, like people of Africa for education to Americans bringing black people over to America as slaves? Like I, I don't know like the history behind that. I just don't really understand that Seemingly that in history, Americans have searched the world to be able to find the best of the best to bring them over here to make America better. So I'm glad you referenced that because going to Africa was really about uh, uh, the, the consumption of the resources, not just the history. Because remember, this is where the golds were. This is where uh, all of the uh, treasures were in Africa. You think about the pyramids, uh, all the treasures in the pyramids in, in Egypt. Um, it was about taking its natural resources and the, the natural resources that it harvested in addition to the information. And so uh, you'll find that historically a lot of the pyramids were uh, uh, destroyed to also uh, diminish that the fact that those were uh, those uh, the native Egyptian were of African descent, mm -hmm. right? Because it's in Africa, <laughs> yeah. but they had they had completely uh, torn down uh, the statues and torn down uh, those figures to distort history. Mm -hmm. That goes back to our question on history and, and information. Is that you know history then becomes distorted when you're uh, completely defacing stones that represented historic figures. Yeah. So they robbed the land of its natural resources. They robbed the land of its gold, its jewels, its treasures, its treasures, and then used those resources to build in other colonies um, and also obviously utilizing slave wages and cheap labor, uh, indentured, indentured servitude, um, 
in in said countries. And so this is a history. America has a history. Uh, not, not, not even America, but colonizers have a history of this behavior mm-hmm. and yeah. a pattern, obviously. Yeah. 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 It is like, obviously these are all like really like extensive rabbit holes that we could, we could get into and stuff. And, you know, I just wanted to, to say thank you and I appreciate your time for kind of going through the, them all with me. Um, I apologize, but we're going to have to, uh, to end this year now. I'm just due to time constraints and stuff, but I, I would love two things. One for, for you to be able to uh, just kind of, again, kind of go over you like some of the awards that, you know, have been presented to you, um, like your platforms yeah. that you're on and, you know, like any way that people can get a hold of you. And then um, I would love to force you into a corner right now to be able to agree to be able to come back on the show again so that we can have some more some more conversations because my mind is reeling at a thousand miles per hour and we probably need at least another 12 hours to cover all the stuff that I want to pick your brain about. Absolutely. Uh, well, I have been elected to uh, government. I've been elected official. Uh, this is now my third time being elected to public office. Uh, in the capacity as the at-large uh, committee woman for the D.C. Democratic Party. Uh, former commissioner, we've championed issues around uh, global human sex trafficking. We've championed issues around human trafficking. Uh, a lot of areas with missing girls. I know you've probably heard of Michelle Obama talking about Bring Back Our Girls. You know, I was one of the people who was also behind kind of awareness to a lot of the truth behind what was happening to missing girls uh, and bringing that full circle to present day um, and looking at the historic connotation of black bodies being viewed as sex objects um, even in during the slave trade. Um, and so we've been recognized as uh, community leaders for providing youth services. So we received the Outstanding Community Service Award from the Community Connoisseurs, uh, the Excellence Awards from DC Now, uh, and uh, we received the Soaring Eagle Award in um, uh, in Memphis. Obviously, Memphis is where Dr. King was assassinated. And coming up, we'll have a rally on Dr. King and his stance on reparations for Black Americans and his stance on uh, of justice claims. And so um, we've we've done quite well with being recognized nationally and internationally. Um, obviously, some of our work has spanned over in South Africa, where we worked around on issues around the HIV and AIDS pandemic, um, and and the need for restoration there. Uh, working on uh, working with on Robben Island, um, looking at uh, criminal justice reform. Uh, in both in South Africa and in the Americas. And so criminal justice reform is a heavily uh, worked on topic and education reform, obviously, health justice, economic justice. And so we have had our hands in to create a number of, of impacting uh, policy matters that I'm happy to share with you at a later date. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, and I just uh, immensely appreciate it. Just social media handles one more time so that everybody can know if they want to reach out to you on, on social media or just cruise through your social media profiles um, and check out all your guys' awards and all the stuff that you've, uh, that you've accomplished at Crawford at Large. Absolutely. Crawford at Large, C as in Charlie, R as in Richard, A as in Apple, W as in West, F as in Frank, O as in Ox, R as in Richard, D as in Dog, 
at A is in Apple, T is in Tom, large, L as in Larry, A as in Apple, R as in Richard, G as in Date, and E, E as in Edward. So Crawford at Large on all platforms. You can, you can even hashtag the Crawford at Large. One of the things we created um, was a roundtable that addressed issues that brought together nonprofits from around the world um, to address systemic issues like violence intervention, um, like youth services, like missing and exploited children. And so you're welcome to join the conversation. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I, I really appreciate your time. And um, again, like all the, uh, all sorts of these um, social media handles and information will be included in the, the bio description. And when we do the social media blast and all the promotional stuff, um, it'll all be attached to it. So if anybody needs to have a little bit more information to get a hold of her, um, the, the information will be right there at your fingertips. So again, thank you very much and have a wonderful day. Excellent. You do the same. And thank you again for all the great work that you're doing for our country and our world at large. Thank you so much. Thank you.